Well, we are making our way through the book of Exodus, and we come back to that this morning. We are in Exodus 28 and 29, and as Dave said, we're going to consider the priesthood this morning. Now, just to orient us to where we are in the story quickly, I reminded us last week, Exodus is roughly divided into three parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 19, or really chapter 18, where, it, where the main theme is God delivers. God delivers. God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, which eventually is going to lead them into the land he promised Abraham. The second part of the book of Exodus is the God who makes demands, and that's in chapters 19 through 24. That's where we see what we call the Sinai Covenant, the Mount Sinai Covenant, where God is on the mountain, and he delivers his law to the people of Israel, and he calls them to covenant. They agree to that covenant to be his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. And then they ratify that covenant together. And then part of that covenant is the establishment of a tent, which we call a tabernacle, and that's chapters 35, 25 through the end of the book, through chapter 40. So the, the last part of the book of Exodus is the God who dwells. So we got the God who delivers, the God who demands, and the God who dwells. And we began last week in that third section, the God who dwells, talking about the tabernacle, the tent that he called upon the people of Israel to construct. Now we're going to continue with that tabernacle theme the next couple of weeks, this week and next week, because this week we're going to talk about the people who worked in it. Who were the people that God had called to work inside the tabernacle, namely the priesthood? And then next week we're going to consider who God called to work on it, the craftsmen and the artists who were enlisted by God and filled with the Spirit of God to actually put this tent together. And we learned some wonderful things about God's purposes for us as his people in both the priesthood and the carpentry squad, we could call them, uh, who put the tabernacle together in the way God gifts us as his people and calls us to work in his kingdom. So this morning, though, we're going to talk about what we might call the, the spiritual dimension, although the craftsman work was deeply spiritual, as we'll see next week as well. But we're going to look at who God enlisted in this tabernacle to serve him as priests. So the outline for the sermon this morning is the blessing of the priesthood. We're going to talk about how this was a rich gift to the people of God to have a priesthood to serve in the tabernacle, and we're talking about why that was. Secondly, we're going to talk about the inadequacy of the priesthood, why it wasn't intended to be permanent, and why it's not functioning today. And then thirdly, the fulfillment of the priesthood. Where are we in redemptive history as, it, as regarding the priesthood now? Who are, who's the priest? Who's the high priest? Who are the priests in God's kingdom now? So we're going to talk about that as we go near the end of the sermon. So first of all, the blessing of the priesthood. Two points I want to make under this first part. First of all, the blessing of identification. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 28, where God says to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. That phrase, among the people of Israel. Of Israel. That's a wonderful gift. We can just read past that verse and think, wow. So he's just telling them where he's to pick these priests from. But notice, Moses is to choose priests from his own family and from among the people of Israel. Their leaders, the leaders of the people of Israel, were, were going to be able to identify with the people who were called to lead. They weren't some, while they, were, while they had a unique calling 
as a priesthood, as we'll see some of what that calling entailed. Nevertheless, when the Israelites looked at their leaders, they saw Israelites. That was very important for God. That, that the people that they look like, that they look to, would be like them in some serious ways. Now, I'm not talking about in terms of ethnicity. I'm talking about in terms of humanity. The Lord uses his people to serve his people. His people, as sinners, are best equipped to know how to serve fellow sinners. In fact, Hebrews 5 picks up on this very theme when it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. You see, this principle of identification was very important for God. He wanted sinners chosen so that when sinners looked to the priesthood, they said, those are men like us. Those are men who, are not, who, are, who know what it's like to struggle. Those are men who know what it's like, even though they relate to God on our behalf, they know what it's like to be, in the language of Hebrews 5, ignorant and wayward and beset with weakness. See, this, this really radically changes around the paradigm of leadership in our world, doesn't it? Who's the leaders in the world? Are those you look to and say, they're like me? Or do they look and they say, well, that's somebody I aspire to be. And of course, in God's church, leaders are to be those who set an example and, and were to strive to aspire. But the more fundamental thing is, these are people just like me. These are, these are, these are people who know what it's like to have tasted the bitterness of sin who know what it's like to struggle, who know what it's like to doubt, who know what it's like to, to wrestle with God. And this is what God calls his leaders to be. Those who are chosen out from among his people must be more, I would say, like them than unlike them. And I was like them in their humanity, not some elevated spiritual position where you look and say, oh, I could never be that. I could never do that. No, when God said, I want my priesthood to be able to identify with the people. So that's the first blessing, the, the blessing of identification, that the priesthood was chosen from among the people. A second part of that blessing of identification is that the priesthood was to be distinct from the people. So I just talked about how they were supposed to be like them, and now I'm going to talk about how they were unlike them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 28. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So... They were to look at Aaron and be able to see he's an Israelite. But they were to look at Aaron and say, he's a holy Israelite. He's set apart. Look at his clothing. Look what he's wearing. This is very different from what we would wear. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to communicate something. The clothing that the priests wore was for the purpose of distinction. Because God knows his people need someone who's not only can identify with them in their need, but who's also wholly set apart and totally dedicated to God. Chapter 28 is largely a description of the clothing the priests were to wear. There were eight articles. There was a breastplate, there was an ephod, there was a robe, which is an ephod, what they would have worn on their 
worn on their, their above on, on top of their clothing, and then a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban on their head, a sash, a plate of pure gold for their forehead, and linen undergarments. God took it all the way down. He was an expert tailor. He, he included everything in the priestly garments down to the underwear. And, and, he labeled, and that's chapter 28, is laying out these specific eight different articles of clothing that the priests were to wear as they served in the tabernacle. And they were all, they're all marked by beauty and artistry. And as we'll see next week, many of the elements of the tabernacle are reflected in the clothing that the priests are wearing, again, to show God's identification with his people. The beautiful outward garments of the high priest showed that these ministers were set apart. While they remain like the people, they are expected to represent the Lord in his holiness. And so the priestly garments were made of similar colors and materials that went into the structure of the tabernacle. And these garments continually emphasized to the Israelites that they need someone holy and dedicated to the Lord to serve them. That's going to be very, very important as we come to the fulfillment in point number three. So don't forget this. Don't forget this foundation we're spending some time laying, this blessing of identification. Like the people, but unlike the people. Choose from among them, but set them apart. So that's the blessing of identification. The priesthood was chosen from among the people, but the priesthood was distinct from the people. Second blessing of the priesthood, the blessing of representation. The blessing of representation. Now look at chapter 28, verse 12, where it captures the heart of what this representation was all about. And you shall set the two stones. This is talking about what was, what was to put, be put in the ephod that the priest was to wear. You shall set the two stones, verse 12, on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for, for remembrance. So the idea is the 12 tribes of Israel were going to be written on these stones that six of them would be on one and six of them would be on the other. And so when the priest was doing his work, he was doing it as a representative of the people. This is why he wore their names on himself in his clothing. Now, this does not mean that the priest remembered every name, the millions of people that he was representing. But rather, these were memorial stones that represented all the people as members of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they existed as signs of God's remembrance of them. He did not need the memorial stones on the ephod to remember his people. They existed as visible assurances that he loves and cares for his people, even as the priest bore their names on himself. This remembrance also involves personal knowledge. This is seen in the two onyx stones on the shoulders and the 12 precious stones that were embedded in the breastplate of the ephod. Look at chapter 28, verse 7. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together, and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece of, with it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. In verse 9. You shall take the two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. Look down at 21. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets. Now this is referring to the stones that were in the breastplate. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes in verse 29. 
So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Now, this representation not only included remembrance, but it also included sacrifice. As Dave read for us at the end of chapter 29, the priests were to offer sacrifices in the morning and in the evening on behalf of the people because of sin. The ongoing sacrifice and prayer was necessary because of the ongoing problem of sin that was in and among the people of Israel. And so this priesthood then was representing them not only in terms of remembrance and reminding them that God remembers them, but also in terms of offering sacrifices on their behalf so that they could be forgiven and cleansed of their sin. It's a beautiful picture of God's care for his people in the priesthood. I hope you see what a blessing it would have been for an average Israelite to look up and say, look at that priest clothed in those garments. Look at those names. That's me. He's representing me. He's serving on my behalf before God. He's offering sacrifices for my sins. I don't have to do all that bloody stuff. I mean, he's doing that for me. And that, that payment for that sin is being attributed to my account. And, 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 and he's an Israelite. He's among us. He's just like us. So it was a great blessing to have the priesthood in the midst of the people. Second point. That's the blessing of the priesthood. Second, the inadequacy of the priesthood. The inadequacy of the priesthood. First, the priesthood was frail. Look at chapter 29, verses 1 through 4. Now this is what you shall do to them, that is the priests, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Verse 5. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band on the ephod. Verse 6. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now, I want you to notice the priests needed to be cleaned first. Now, this shows something. Remember how I said that the, the, the priests were like, they were chosen from among the Israelites? Which means, guess what? They were sinners. And they too needed to be cleansed of their sin before they could serve as priests. It wasn't like, well, these are the holy guys. They don't need any atonement. No, these are the holy guys and they need atonement. They need atonement. These are the ones I have chosen to set apart. But don't you think that I set them apart because they're better than everybody else? I set them apart because I chose, them to set, to, chose to set them apart, and they need sacrifice for sin just like my people do. And so the atonement is given or the, the, and symbolically here as a washing with water, a cleansing, so that they might serve. They're not just taking a bath before they put their clothes on. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to symbolize cleansing from sin. And lest we think, 
that was the only instance. If you read the rest of the consecration of the priests in chapter 29, it's very clear. Some of the atonement of the bulls and the goats is for the priests first, and then it's for the people. So the priests have to make sacrifices for themselves before they make sacrifices for the people. This is what Hebrews 5.3 says. Hebrews 5.3 says, Because of this, the priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So the priest had to, had to make sacrifices for his own sins just as he did for those of the people. Brothers and sisters, this teaches us something. The priesthood is inadequate. The priesthood is frail. The priesthood is sinful. The priesthood needs atonement. Second part of the inadequacy of the priesthood is that the priesthood was temporary. The priesthood was temporary. Now, you say, wait, Pastor Mark, the last verse you just read... In chapter 29, verse 9, doesn't say it's temporary. Look there again. It says in the second half of chapter 29, verse 9, the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So you just said the priesthood is temporary. The text says forever. How are you going to resolve that? Well, it's quite simple, really. Forever in the Old Testament, and I don't have time to go everywhere where it uses the word forever, but forever can either refer, depending on context, to forever, like no end in sight or an unspecified, undetermined period of time. And in this case, I'm going to make the argument that forever means unspecified period of time. It's going to be a long time. This is going to be something that God's people are going to do for a long time. And they did do it for a long time. But it can't be forever in terms of Aaron himself because Aaron's going to die. All right? So... It clearly cannot mean forever in terms of Aaron and his sons because they would eventually die. This is what Hebrews 7.23 says. The former priests were many in number. Why? Why did God have to have so many priests? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. <laughs> you can't have an eternal priesthood without eternal priests. And so here we have Hebrews reminding us that the reason... Now, they were all descended from the, from the lineage of Aaron. But nevertheless, Aaron's priests kept dying. And the priesthood of Aaron kept dying off. And so this communicated something. This is temporary, folks. This is temporary. This is not going to last forever. In fact, Psalm 110, verse 4, promises that there is, in fact, a greater priest to come. So, let's talk about that greater priest. That is, first of all, the blessing of the priesthood. Second, the inadequacy of the priesthood. Now let's talk finally about the fulfillment of the priesthood. I just mentioned Psalm 110, verse 4. And that verse is quoted in Hebrews 7, and it's applied to Jesus. Would you look with me at Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be in the book of Hebrews for the rest of the sermon. Because the book of Hebrews, more than probably any other book in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, sorry, tells us how to think about the tabernacle and the priesthood and how it relates to us as God's people today. Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. That may surprise you, because the priesthood came from the line of Aaron. But he came from the line of Judah. 
he came from a more exalted line than Aaron. And Hebrews 7 makes that point that Jesus, while he shares our humanity in that he is like us, he's also distinct from us because he comes from heaven. So look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's what we're reading about in Exodus 28, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, that is the requirement that the priesthood be Levitical, that it descend directly from Aaron. How can that be set aside? Look at what Hebrews says. Because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And what is that better hope? Jesus Christ. How does he earn the right to the priesthood? He doesn't die. In a sense, he dies, of course, on the cross. But he is risen from the dead. The power of an indestructible life. Therefore, he is priest forever because of his resurrection. So that leads us into our first point about the fulfillment of the priesthood, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. I want you to see several passages in the book of Hebrews that point us to Christ as our high priest. Look at, first of all, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 10 through 18. I love Hebrews. Hebrews is basically a sermon, so you just read it. You don't even have to comment on it because it, it, it sounds like a sermon even when you read it. And because that's what I believe, it, it's sermonic in the way it's written. Look at verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, talking about Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So what's the writer of Hebrews doing? He's showing the identification of Jesus with us, that he is humanity, just like us, because that's a requirement for a, for a priest. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus, he, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children, that is believers in Christ, 
share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, he became a human being, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is atonement, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Clear, Jesus is the new high priest. Look at chapter 7, verse 26 through 28. Again, this is talking about how Jesus identifies with us. Chapter 7, verse 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, Jesus fits the qualification for priests. He identifies with us in our humanity, but he's also holy and innocent and unstained and separated for us in that he was not a sinner. He never sinned, and therefore he didn't need to offer any sacrifice for his own sins, and therefore his offering was for our sins alone. He's our great high priest. He's much greater than the priests of the Old Testament who, yes, we're human, but we're sinners. Christ is a greater high priest because he was never a sinner. He's exalted above the heavens. He's holy and innocent and unstained. Second, he atones for us. He's not, he's not a priest who just offers sacrifice. He's a priest who is the sacrifice. He offers himself as the sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hand, that's not of this creation, talking about the tabernacle, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Look at verse 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here comes the gospel. Friends, kids, teenagers, adults, listen to me. Did you see that verse? 
Look at verse 27 again. Just as it is appointed for man. Put your name there. Put your, don't put man. Put your name there. Just as it is appointed by God for blank to die once. You're not coming back. You will die one time. And what will happen? Judgment. You are going to come into judgment after you die. Does that make you nervous? It should. It should. God knows way more about you than even you know. He knows more of your sins than you know. And he's a just judge, and he will give you your just punishment. But look at verse 28. This is the good news. This is for you. If you have yet to come to Christ, this is what I'm praying that you would hear and respond to this morning. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's your hope. He died for the sins of many. Why didn't he say he died for the sins of all? Because he didn't die for everybody's sins. Because why would he die for everybody's sins if people go to hell? We're not going to get into the whole thing about that. But listen to me. Listen to me. It says there, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. So whether people think, well, of course you've got to believe in order to access the atonement, or whether the atonement had a specific design for only the elect, which is what I believe, but nevertheless, the point is he died to bear the sins of those who trust him. That's the point. So if you're not trusting him, you're not in that sentence. Those who, he's been offered to bear the sins of many, but he will. He'll receive you. He'll receive anybody who turns to him. You can be in the many. Get in the many. Get in the many. Don't leave this morning without being in the many. You have to be in the many. And the only way you get in the many is through the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting him to bear your sin. But notice what will happen. That's not the end of the story, friends. If that were the end, we got no gospel to preach. A man died on the hill a long time ago probably as a martyr, he said it was for your sins, so trust in him. End of story. Well, that's not good news. But the, the rest of it is, he will appear a second time. That's good news. He's coming back. Not to deal with sin. He's not coming to die on a cross again. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the good news. He's coming back to save those who are wait, waiting for him, who are ready for him to come back, who are eager for his return. And that's, that's, that's the whole gospel in two verses right there. So brother, sister, friend, that must be our hope. That must be our hope. It's appointed for us to die once. We're going to go into judgment. Christ is our only hope. He will bear our sins, and then he'll appear a second time to save us and bring him to himself. It's good news. He atones for us. But it gets even better than that. It gets even better than that. Because not only does he identify with us, not only does he atone for us, but right now, right now, he ever lives to intercede for us. See, it's not just he did that in the past and he's coming back to do something else in the future. In the interim, he's working for you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. His blood is assuaging all of your guilt and all of your, all of your sin and washing you continually, repeatedly. Look at chapter 7, verse 23 to 25. Chapter 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number. We read this one. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Nobody's fallen out of that many, friends. If you trust Christ for your forgiveness, if you are casting yourself on Him to bear your sin, you're not going to be lost because He's interceding for you. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Why? Because you're so strong? No, because He is. He is strong enough to keep you. He's strong enough to hold on to you. He's strong enough to keep forgiving you. His blood is worth that much. So he's not going to let you go. He's going to intercede for you. Listen, brothers and sisters, as great as it was to have that high priest or those priests in the Old Testament to wear that ephod and to have those stones of remembrance on them, Christ and his remembrance is far, far better. In fact, the act of inscribing the names of the children of Israel on stones to be worn by the high priest may provide the background for a proper understanding of a statement that, about Christ in the book of Revelation. We read this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on it, on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Greg Beal, commenting on this verse, says that the two stones of the priestly ephod are reduced to one stone because Christ has summed up Israel in himself and only his name, that of the true representative, need to be written on the end-time stone borne by believer priests. In other words, there's no need to put 12 tribes on there. There's one priest that matters, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, for the Christian, Christ is the high priest and he enters the holy place with his name written upon the stone of the priestly garments. And brothers and sisters, that's really good news. <laughs> because as long as Jesus is in heaven, he will bear the names of the sons and daughter of God on his heart as a continual memorial before God. If you've turned to Jesus in faith, he bears your name. Your name's written on his heart. My name, my name may not literally be, be written physically on Christ's clothing, but it's as good as it were if it were. When God looks on Christ, he sees me in Christ. He sees you in Christ. He sees my name, our name, myself, ourself, my identity, our identity, born by and wrapped up in Christ. Let's put this simply. If you're a Christian, your name's written in heaven. And it's not on some database or in a filing cabinet. It's tied to a person, to Jesus Jesus ascended to heaven for your salvation. He's the memorial before God guaranteeing your security in heaven. So let me apply this to you. When you doubt your salvation or when you feel the weight of your sin or when you let God down in some spectacular way, you can look up to heaven and you can see your high priest there with your name written over his heart. You can see Jesus standing there as a memorial before God that you are his child. And it's even better than that because you look ahead over the remaining years of your life, however long that might be, you don't know what problems you're going to face. Financial hardship, mental illness, loneliness, bereavement, sickness. Can you be sure that you'll stand firm throughout those trials? How might you doubt? How will you sin? How will you cope? You can't know the answers to those questions. You can't know how you're going to respond. But this you can know. Right now and forever, Jesus is in heaven and he bears your name. The hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, by Augustus Toplady, ends with this verse, which captures beautifully the confidence we can enjoy as Christians. My name from the palms of your hands, eternity cannot erase. 
Impressed on your heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end will endure as sure as the promise is given. More happy but not more secure are glorified spirits in heaven. Christians who have already died are more happy than us because they're already in heaven with Jesus. But they're not more secure than us. Their future is secure because Jesus is in heaven and our future is secure because Jesus is in heaven. What's the secret of surviving for 75 years as a Christian? Jesus is the answer. If you're a Christian, when Jesus passed through the cloud into heaven, your name was written over his heart. You're as good as there already. And there's only one way God can exclude you from heaven, and that's if he excludes Jesus from heaven. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. One more, one more piece, and then we're done. Because the New Testament doesn't stop there, as glorious as that is. But brothers and sisters, in our time remaining, between seeing him, resting in that security, we got work to do. We got work to do. And the work we're called to do is priestly work. We're called to be priests. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Peter writes to Christians in the Christian church and says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are the people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Revelation 1.6 said, Christ died to make us priests to God. We are priests, and our priestly ministry consists in identification with Christ and representation for Christ. That's what we're called to do as his priests. As priests in God's temple, we offer the sacrifice of witness. That's what Peter says. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. God builds us up as a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2, 5, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. What are those spiritual sacrifices? He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a royal priesthood who live, as 1 Peter 2 says, sojourners and exiles, just like the Israelites were, these spiritual sacrifices of praise and witness would be offered as a witness to the unbelieving world of who our God is. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just as the Old Testament priests sacrificed on behalf of the people to bring them to God, so we as New Testament priests sacrifice on behalf of the nations to bring them to God. This priestly ministry comes through our witness to Christ's gospel, to his redemptive work, to the mediating priests. Our mission as the true temple of God is to extend his dwelling place throughout the earth by our witness until that temple is completed. The new temple begins with Christ as the foundation stone and continues to be built up as a spiritual house until it's consummated at his return at the end of history. Similarly, God's dwelling place grows because Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, Ephesians 2 verse 20, joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So friends, during this present time, the church as priests dwelling in the invisible temple of God witness to God's presence to others 
either in blessing or in judgment. All believers in Christ are priests whose service reflect God's presence to others through their life and words. This reflection of God's presence in the unseen sanctuary shines light into the darkness of the world and transforms those in darkness to reflect God's presence and become reflective images of God in his temple. This is our work now. That is, we are witnesses to God's grace by our conduct and by our words, showing what heaven's going to be like in miniature. This is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means we've got important work for us to do. In closing, let me read this quote from Phil Riken, who summarizes so helpfully, practically, what our calling as priests is now. Many Christians still think of ministry as something that is primarily or even exclusively for pastors and missionaries. It is true that ministers and missionaries are called to serve. Like the Old Testament priests, men ordained to gospel ministry have been consecrated for holy service to God. But God's given all of us a sacred calling. We are priests of the living God, and we have a holy obligation to serve him. We no longer serve him in the tabernacle, but in the church and also in the world. We serve him by praising his name. We serve him by giving generously. We serve him by binding up the wounds of the brokenhearted and embracing the outcasts of society. We serve him by loving those who are hard to love with the same merciful love that we've received from God in Christ. We serve him by telling people to trust Jesus and by doing whatever we do for his glory. When the Old Testament priests were ordained, they were marked with blood in three places. Their earlobes, their thumbs, and their big toes. This meant that they belonged to God from head to toe. As John Davis explains it, this act implied the complete dedication of life and ability to the service of God. Symbolically, the blood put on the right ear sanctified that organ to hear God's word. That which was put on the right hand set the, the, set the hands apart in their performance of the work. And the right foot spoke of the sanctified walk of life of the priest as an example to others. God has made the same claim on all of us. We belong to him through Jesus Christ, our high priest. We have been marked with the blood of Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's why we're here. We have been set apart to serve. May we be faithful to do just that. Let's pray together. Worship team, come and lead us. Father, we are thankful that we have a merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us even right now as we worship, perfecting our praises, joining among us by your Spirit, lifting our hearts heavenward, reminding us of where you are seated and what you are doing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your ongoing intercession for us. Thank you for your atonement for our sins. Thank you for your coming again. Thank you for the certainty that we don't wait in vain, we don't labor in vain, because you didn't wait in vain and you didn't labor in vain. You left the tomb behind and you ascended back to the glory of, of the Father. So we wait for you. And while we wait for you, we want to be found working. We want to be found busy. We want to be found doing the works of God. We want to be found glorifying God in the mundane and in the magnificent. 
in the, in the daily routine tasks and in the, the tasks that are more unique. God, may we be found faithful to serve you, to be set apart for you, to walk with you, to trust in you, and yes, to bear witness of, to others of you. Make us fruitful, make us faithful for the glory of your name and for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.